sitting in the, the dean's office at Bart's uh, because I hadn't shown up to, to something that, that I was supposed to show up for. And she's, she's railing me out for it. And I, I, I just suddenly had this, this kind of epiphany of, you should leave, Pete. You should, you should just, you should leave. And, and I, I said to her, um, okay, I think I, should, uh, I think I should leave medicine. And there was, again, the cliche thing of that feeling a weight being lifted off your shoulders. I remember that feeling as clear as day of sitting in that chair, just go, of course you should. It's been obvious for years that you should have done this. This is what you should do. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Paths, the podcast about people who have lived unusual lives marked by dramatic change or a sense of living different lives simultaneously. You just heard a preview of today's guest, Peter Wingfield. Peter grew up in Cardiff, Wales. He studied medicine first at Oxford University and then at St. Bart's in London, before leaving med school just weeks before graduation to pursue his long-held passion, acting. After training at Guildhall Drama School, he had a successful career doing lots of television work in particular, both in the UK and after his big break in the TV show Highlander in the US. He worked on numerous famous shows, including 24 and CSI Miami. In 2011, Peter decided to return to medical school in Vermont, having to do the whole course again, despite having only missed the last few weeks in St. Bart's. And now he is Peter Wingfield, MD, an anesthesiologist in Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. He lives up in the hills near the Hollywood sign. I'm sure you'll agree Peter had a fascinating journey in his life, and I really enjoyed hearing all about it. As ever, I will include a guide to the topics we talk about in the episode description for anyone with a burning desire to hear a particular part. A big thank you to Ali Ackland Snow for putting me in touch with Peter. And a big thank you also to my patrons on Patreon. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash patspodcast. I'm beginning the process of publishing exclusive content on there, including early release episodes and unedited interviews, as I'll often try to pare these conversations down from about two hours to closer to 90 minutes. Okay, enough from me. Over to Peter. Enjoy. I think people would hear you and imagine you might have had a quite middle class background. You were, you were saying that wasn't the case, that uh, you, you had quite a kind of working class background in Cardiff. Uh, could you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, very much so. I, I mean... Um... I, I think that there's there is an aspect to that that is kind of uh, that I've dragged with me all these years, where I, I I appear to be something that I'm actually not, and I, I'm I'm constantly trying to figure out the kind of the middle ground of where I where I should exist. Um, yeah, I I, I grew up uh, in a single parent household. Uh, my dad left when I was. I think um, and my mum raised me and my brother in in a little terraced house in in a not very attractive suburb of Cardiff in Grangetown um, and I, I went to I went to the local school I, I didn't go to any fancy uh, private school or anything and I never really understood that that had had meaning or relevance 
until I went to university where people would ask you, what school did you go to? And I, I, it was just a confusing question to me. It was like, why? I mean, I can tell you what school I went to, but you, it wouldn't mean anything to you. It's, it's, mm. it's just this l little school in Cardiff. And, uh, and, and part of that is, I think, I mean, I mean the household that I grew up in or the, the, the family that I grew up in, my, my grandparents, uh, my grandmother on my father's side was a, a tremendously committed social climber, um, which mm. I, I sort of, you know, I, I, I got very close to her in the, the latter part of, of her life. Um, but, but I remember her as, as a kid just being... You know, she, she was very proper. She was very, uh, very focused on you know knowing which which knife to use at, at at lunch on Sundays and and using the right words and 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 her husband, my grandfather, who was a huge influence on my life, was uh, was an English teacher uh, amongst many other things. Uh, he he was he he was on the beach of Dunkirk and uh, and was rescued from there and after that kind of invalided out of the army and bounced around all sorts of jobs trying to sell insurance and weird things but ended up in teaching and he again was was very much a was focused on understanding language and structure and how you spoke and so i i always sounded and behaved a bit differently than the people around me Mm. You know the 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 school my my primary school in Grangetown, I I don't I mean I really don't know if any of the other kids went to went to university of any description at all. Uh, most of them I'm sure didn't. Some probably did, but I, I it it just wasn't that wasn't the the expectation in in my school in that area at that time. Um, and and so I was always a bit, a bit, you know, slightly odd, slightly off, I think. Your story in, involves a, a huge gap. You you start studying medicine, but then you become an actor, and then later in your life you go back to medicine. So so how did you feel about medicine at that point when you first began it in Oxford? Yeah. So um, the thing about Oxford Medical School in Oxford, uh, I'm sure same is true in Cambridge. Um, you're not uh, most places where, when you go to medical school, you're in a hospital environment. Everyone around you is either a, 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 another medical student or a doctor or a nurse or, you know, I mean, everybody is medical. Oxford, just not like that. I mean, there's you're surrounded by people that are doing history and modern language and uh, PPE, just people doing lots and lots of different things. So you don't feel like you're in medical school. And... Yes, the, the, the lectures and the, the lab stuff is all the same as you would be doing at med school, but, but it's so diluted um, that I, I, I honestly didn't feel like I was in med school. I did a lot of plays. I did a lot of things other than medicine. Um, and that, that gradually got kind of more and more out of hand so that I showed up less and less for the stuff that I should be doing and was doing other stuff instead. Uh, three years at Oxford, uh, you finish up with a bachelor's degree 
in a, uh, I mean, it's called physiological science. You get an arts degree in physiological science, because all degrees from Oxford are arts degrees. And, and then you move on to clinical, which is in a hospital, on the ward, practical stuff. Um, so Oxford, uh, I loved it. It was, it was great. I, was, I had a tremendous amount of freedom. I then went to the clinical part, which uh, I, I went to Bart's Hospital in London, and that was a whole different thing. That was every day. I mean, I think we had maybe, maybe four weeks off a year, uh, maybe less than that, I don't remember. But, but that's every day. You're just showing up to the hospital on the, on the wards doing medical stuff. And that, that was where I really understood what being in medical school was, the, the complete, total commitment to this is what you need to be doing because there is so much information. There is so much that you need to, to have at your fingertips that you're, you're not, you're not g going doing plays as well. You're not, uh, I mean, you have extra, extracurricular time, but you, you really need to commit your entire life to doing this. So on the subject of doing the plays, you mentioned you did the plays yeah. in Oxford. Mm. Um, did, had you started, was that where you started acting in Oxford or had you been doing it as a kid? No, I'd been doing it in, in school, in high school. Uh, I, I, I did plays, uh, initially, uh, I, I mean, school did this, this, uh, play at Easter every year. So it was a, a church funded school and we, uh, we had a, again, a tremendously influential person in my life, the drama school teacher there, John Gould, uh, who was a, a very passionate uh, very passionate man who sort of, I don't know, saw something in me, sort of adopted me in a way. Um, anyway, I, I, I did, first thing I ever did was, because uh, everyone was involved in this Easter play, there were, there were all the, the main speaking roles, but they, there were some big crowd scene where they needed people to just like shout a line here, there. And, uh, and so I got, I had a one line role uh, in, in that and and then started sort of hanging out with with those people a bit and and then did did more serious stuff because uh, we do a Christmas play I, I, I played Shylock in the Merchant of Venice which was just transformative it was just like oh no this this is it man this is this is glorious and then there there was a, there's a four-week I don't know if it still exists, a four-week summer uh, residential course, National Youth Theatre of Wales, where you, you basically go and live at university accommodation in Cardiff, and you rehearse uh, a, a couple of plays and put them on in, in the theatre, the Sherman Theatre there. Uh, but everyone you're working with is professional, apart from the, the students, obviously. I think it's 18 to 23 year olds, 16 to 23 year olds was, was probably the, the kids. But then professional director, professional music director, professional choreographer. And, and because of my, my kind of starting to get interested in school, I auditioned for that. I got in, 
And I mean, that was really the moment that it all changed for me because it was, uh, I, I mean, I, I thought the, I've met my people. These are my people. This is, we would every morning get up and do, uh, do an, a dance workout and then music, and then we'd rehearse uh, throughout the rest of the day. And, uh, and the, the people there, the, the, the kids around me there were just, they were, it's that thing that I was talking about, what I wanted at Oxford and was disappointed by. The, the kids that I was working with were just so much sharper than I was. I felt stupid. I, yeah. I felt slow and, and like they, they would just, they would bounce off each other. They would, they, they were just thinking things that wouldn't occur to me because I, I, I had a very rigid way of looking at the world. Yeah. And, and I loved it. I just loved it. That's so funny. I, I, I have to say I, I relate to that in the extreme, but uh, so, so that's interesting. So you have uh, this dual passion then or you have this this other passion outside of medicine and you're doing plays at oxford uh and then you go to saint bart's and it's like no you can't do the plays anymore which which leads us up to this extraordinary moment which is which is totally fascinating that you're you're a month away from finishing the course in med school in saint bart's which you've been at for three years so you've now been studying medicine for six years and you're a month away from finishing and you decide Mm -hmm. to leave to become an actor can, yeah. can you tell us about that like what what was going <laughs> through your mind then and what were the kind of pressures on you in terms of like your family's reaction to it and like what was your plan oh god if only there'd been a plan um, <laughs> I, I i mean it, it had been coming for a long time um i was I, I was still doing plays when I was at Bart's and there was, uh, again, you, it, when you look backwards, the, the path is kind of obvious. Um, there, there was, which makes you wonder if, okay, so if I'd done, if I'd taken a different step there and been in a different environment, would it still have happened? Anyway, there was one other person uh, in med school at the same time as me who was passionate about drama. Uh, a guy called Ian Ackland Snow. Uh, he was the year above me in med school at Bart's. Uh, his family are famous, Oscar-winning family. Uh, there's kind of two branches. One was uh, one's kind of set design, construction. The other is uh, uh, is, is costume, wardrobe. Um, Tremendously involved in the uh, the British film industry for decades. Uh, anyway, Akers was uh, was very into uh, directing plays, and between the two of us, there was just this this spark that that allowed me to explore stuff. Uh, in in a way that was kind of completely in depth and fabulous and totally inappropriate for someone who was supposedly training to be a doctor, um, we we set up a a theatre company and uh, toured, went to Edinburgh, 
uh, did a couple of uh, little venues around the place, uh, doing a, a Sam Shepard play, Tooth of Crime. Um, I mean, just there was all this stuff that over the course of the kind of three years that I was at Bart's, this was getting kind of bigger and more uh, all-encompassing. And Ackers was able to hold it together and finish and be a doctor, qualify, although he ultimately later on uh, quit being a regular doctor and went into to publishing, medical publishing. Um, but, but for me, this, there was just this, these two pulls that were getting kind of stronger and stronger, the, the requirements of one side and the, the love and the passion on the other side. And, and as, as we got to, towards the, the very end, there, there was a part of me that just, you know, the, this whole thing of you, you know, people were telling me, you, you need to qualify as a doctor first, and then you can allow this to, to take over your life. But you need to qualify first. You need to have that, that to fall back on. And then there was this, Conversation I'd had with a choreographer at National Youth Theatre Wales, Ian Stewart Ferguson, who had a year or so previously said to me, you know, if you've got something to fall back on, you're going to fall back on it. And, and the, there, was a, there was a truth to that that I, that I understood. Mm. I mean, I, I think as you and I... Uh, spoke briefly the other day uh, talking about uh, Ish, I think it was, that, that had kind of the opposite reaction mm. where he really felt like, no, I needed to become a doctor so that I could then be free to act. Mm. For me, I, I knew in my heart that I, if I had something to fall back on, I would fall back on it that there would be periods where there was no work, so you go find work as a doctor. And, and emergency medicine is interesting because it's shift work. And so there is that possibility of just saying, okay, I'm available, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick up a shift. But m almost every branch of medicine, you, you can't just dip in and out of it and and also things, things are just moving so fast. There's so much change in medicine all the time that staying on top of it requires, requires a, a, a serious commitment for someone who reads as slowly as I do. And, and there, there was also, there was a, a self-identity thing for me that was, that, that was, that was important for, uh, you know, that, I felt if I become a doctor and I never practice medicine again, if I'm an actor for the rest of my life, I'm still a doctor. And the truth is, I'm not a doctor. I'm an actor. Mm. And that, that was, I mean, it, it's really hard to talk about. Uh, my, my buddy, Ben Chaplin, says, if you wanna, if you wanna get people to sound like complete assholes, get them to talk about themselves and their process. You know, I, I'm aware that I, I sound like a, like a, like a total wanker saying that. But it, but there was this aspect of 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 self-definition, yeah. and I, I think that that goes, you know, I mean, stuff goes goes back to to roots, right? My dad was a doctor. There had always been this kind of adoration of 
the, the gloriousness of, of what he was doing, saving lives. And, uh, and you know, there, there, was, there was this sense that, you know, my, my elder brother has tried to do physics but ended up being a doctor. I'm in medical school, I'm going to be a doctor. That, that there was this inevitability of the path of my life and that you know I'd done well in exams in school so that so you get pushed towards science not art and you do really well in science so you get pushed towards medicine because everybody likes uh, everybody likes my son the doctor you know the teachers mm -hmm. like you to be a doctor your family like everyone is happy with with that and and there was this sense of I never chose this this was this was kind of stuck on me and and it's not me mm. and I I, I, I'm, I mean I, I remember it as clear as it was yesterday sitting in the the Dean's office at Bart's uh, because I hadn't shown up to to something that that I was supposed to show up for and she's she's railing me out for it and I I, I just suddenly had this this kind of epiphany of you should leave Pete you should you should just you should leave and and I I said to her um okay I think I should uh, I think I should leave medicine and there was again the cliche thing of that feeling a weight being lifted off your shoulders I remember that feeling as clear as day of sitting in that chair just go of course you should it's been obvious for years that you should have done this. This is what you should do. And there was no plan. There was no, okay, and then I will do. This was just a moment of, you're unhappy here. You've always recognized that. Change it. Step away from it. And it was, it, it was uh, suddenly the, this, the, the dean who'd been just, yelling at me was suddenly really panicked and was was trying to figure out how she could persuade me to change my mind and it was no no it, it's it's okay i'm going to go it's the right choice wow and then there was the uh, okay now i've got to figure out what i do because because yeah. suddenly i got nothing that's a, it's extraordinary and i think um you know uh, as much as so many people will go wow that was a uh, kind of crazy risk to take uh, as many people would say that's uh, so ballsy and so admirable to, to follow your yeah, instinct no, I, like that but uh, yeah uh, and both of those things are true it was a crazy risk to take it was a really stupid crazy terrifying risk mm. but it was there was an honesty to it and I think that's I think that's the thing that I, I notice kind of looking back at, at, uh, at a couple of different occasions when, uh, when, similar, when I've done similar sorts of things. It, it's, it's a struggle between honesty and dishonesty in myself. And, and, and it was, it, it's really frightening to step off the path it, it's really frightening which is why we don't generally do it yeah but there are moments where you you 
you have to, I think. I completely agree. Where I had to anyway. And so how long was it between then doing that and starting in Guildhall Drama School? About a year, a year and a bit, I guess, which would make sense that I, I would have then started auditioning and that would have been for the following year. Um, I, I spent a year in London like doing, doing what I could. Um, uh, I, I was a motorcycle dispatch rider for a while. I worked in a, uh, in, in a uh, central sterile supply place in a hospital in cleaning instruments for, for the operating theatre. Um, I, I was doing kids, kids' parties I tried to get into at that. Was that that point? No, that was probably after I started at Guildhall. Um, but just doing, doing what, what I could to, uh, to get by. Tell me about how you, how you went from Guildhall to your, your first job. So my, uh, my very first job at Guildhall was actually while I was still in school. There was, uh, there was a, a, a BBC used to do these one-hour dramas, so one-and-a-half-hour uh, screen one. And, uh, and they had uh, they'd cast somebody to play a taxi driver, you know, a nothing role, just taxi pulls up, there's a very short interchange with one of the stars of the movie, and, uh, and then taxi drives off. And, and the person they cast... Uh, called them back and said, listen, um, I can't actually drive. And, and I, mean, I don't mean I haven't got a license. I mean, I really, really can't drive. So they, they had to find somebody at very short notice to, to play that role. So they just went to the nearest drama school, said, uh, have you got anyone who can drive? And, and so that was technically my first job. Uh, I drove a cab. I said uh, I know, a couple of stupid lines and and then, uh, then that drove away. That was uh, can't even remember what the thing was called. Um, th- we then, you know, Guildhall. We we had this this big showcase thing in the the final year where agents would come, uh, and and I got an agent then, and so uh, I was starting to audition before drama school completed um, and I went straight from drama school into doing this uh, uh, ITV show uh, called Medics playing a medical student <laughs> which <laughs> for which I'd, I'd done a fair bit of research obviously because I take my, <laughs> my craft very seriously it was a six episode thing and uh, like six main characters each episode was uh, the story of one of them um, and then while I was filming that, I auditioned for Soldier Soldier, um, which I don't know if that's still on. It ran for like 20 years or something, didn't it? Um, I did the, the first season of that. And, and across the, the, the two of those, before one transitioned into the other, I, I did a, uh, a, a, like a mini-series, a five-part um, BBC Two, Screen Two thing called, what the hell was that called? Uh, men's Room, The Men's Room, that's what it was called. Right. Which was, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that, that was great. I mean, medics was, was nonsense, it's just complete <laughs> nonsense. But it was professional work, which was really exciting. Yeah. And, and 
And also that, that was, that's another moment that I remember really clearly and specifically. Um, I, I've been doing, you know, doing this TV show and, uh, and then I'd got another job and I was filming a different TV show and medics started playing on TV back in the days when things only came out, you know, when at nine o'clock on whatever day, that's when it showed. And I was on a bus the following day and I was aware of, of somebody sort of whispering to the, the person sitting next to them and pointing and, and, and felt really kind of weird and uncomfortable. And then just thought, oh no, it's because they saw the show last night. <laughs> and, it, and, and, and understanding that, oh yeah, no, things, things are going to be different now. Yeah. And I mean, not to the extent of like, you know, being Tom Hanks and you can't walk out your door anywhere on the planet, but, but just that thing of recognizing, oh yeah, no, things, uh, I, I actually will be recognized in public by people who saw something that I did. Yeah, uh, and actually, I kind of want to like check in with the you at that moment because we'll get on to when you move across the Atlantic shortly. But before you did that, uh, it seems like this gamble that you made in the dean's office is paying off incredibly well. You know, you're you get into a top drama school, you're you're working all the time. You must have been, and I guess you're in what you're kind of mid or late twenties at this point. So you must have been pretty chuffed uh, with how it was going. Yeah, yeah, no, it, 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 uh, it felt pretty good. It felt pretty good. Um, the, the thing, I mean, the other big kind of revelations that happened to you that you may have sort of, you may have intellectually understood the idea, but you, it's not the same as living it, feeling it, was, when, when Soldier Soldier finished, I'd been working for, I don't know, let's say eight months straight. Had a job all the time. Before, I, before one job ended, I had another job. Before that ended, there was another job. And then suddenly Soldier Soldier ends and there's nothing. There's just this black hole of emptiness and the sense that I might actually never work again. There is no guarantee that I will ever work again. I may have retired. That may be my career. And it'll be 40 years before I realize and I can look back and say, oh, yeah, no, that was the moment that I retired. But, but there was just this, this understanding of, oh, yeah, no, the, the, the insecurity, the not knowing what comes next. Ah, this is what it feels like. And it was awful. It was just soul sapping and terrifying mm. and the the longer you're the longer you you know survive in the business the more that is uh, the power of that moment goes away but it's always it's always there i remember I, I was in 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 la back in the days when you could go to the movies um Arclight Cinema used to get frequently you'd have like stars from movies would come and just chat after the movie. I remember seeing Dustin Hoffman after a movie that he'd been in sitting on stage and he clearly was still really terrified all the time that he'd made his last movie, that he had no work. And it, it, was, it was really kind of, it was sort of, sort of refreshing and, and, and supportive to, to feel like, oh no, 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 that never goes away. And it was also really awful because it was like that never goes away. Even Dustin freaking Hoffman, man. 
yeah yeah funny you say that because that's exactly what i was about to say that i heard that he and gene hackman had done a job together and were like having a coffee or something after and they shared exactly that emotion they were like do mm. you still feel like it's going to be your last job yeah i still feel like that every yeah. time it's crazy <laughs> but it is interesting because like the different kind of echelons uh of of success within acting are kind of interesting because uh, you know i i would v- very freely admit you know i've i've had some good jobs I, I i would um you know i've done enough to be like yes i'm an actor but there's no question you were on another echelon of success than i am on uh, you do, you did tons of stuff and i remember you saying that, yeah, that- i mean i, I was i was w- w- what we call a jobbing actor I yeah. my living from acting I, I'm not by any stretch a, a household name, a star or anything like that, but I was, I, I, I never waited tables, I never washed cars, I, I earned my living from pretending to be somebody that I'm clearly not. Yeah, yeah, which is, it's a good life I think, because you, you don't have that being mobbed in the street thing, but you do get to make a yeah. living too. Um, yeah, no, I, I, was, I, I was never, never interested in that that adulation thing that that was that was never appealing to me so so yeah it was it it kind of felt like like a good spot to be in a good niche yeah um so let's get on to the the big gig which you told me was kind of like the the most life-changing gig that you had which was uh, the tv show highlander which i watched as a kid and i was a huge fan of um and and i remember you in it uh it, it was uh, i really enjoyed that show as a kid um tell me about your experience of of getting that job and what that did for you so it it came the same as everything else it, uh my my agent sent me a couple of sides you know a couple of sheets of paper a couple of scenes they said there's this uh this role that they would like you to tape for and this was back in the days where taping was was very rare um you know you, you would audition by by meeting the people for the project but this it was an american tv show that had uh, a bunch of canadian money in it and a bunch of uh, european money in it so they would film half the year in vancouver in canada and half the year in paris in france um, and they, when they filmed in Paris, they would use a lot of British actors because, I mean, it's obviously filmed in English. You're, they were just easier to fly people in from Britain than fly them from the States. Uh, so, yeah, I, I had these couple of scenes uh, to play the oldest man in the world, uh, to play this, this character that was, uh, they, they, they weren't even sure that he really existed. They, and so he was called Mythos, mm. and uh, and he was supposed to have been alive for five thousand years, and uh, and I, I read the scenes, made absolutely no sense. It was some show about uh, you know people, uh, some people when they die they they just suddenly come back to life again, and then they stay that same age forever, uh, unless you chop their head off, you separate the head from their body. And then you take um, their power, right? Isn't that yeah. how it works? Yeah. If you chop their head off, That's... you would take their power. And in the end, there can yeah. be only one, was the tagline, right? In the end, there can be only one, which, you know, the movie of this is the complete story. At the end of the movie, there is only one. Mm. And then because 
somebody sees an opportunity to have a TV spin-off and make some money, then you change the rules a little bit where, <laughs> yeah, there can be only one, but there's a bunch of people that they kind of like each other, so they hang out and they don't try and kill each other. And like, so in the end, there could be a bunch I can't, if they're Hollywood, an interesting bunch. Hollywood changing <laughs> rules to make money? Nah, come on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Right, so so, so, you, so you dangle this idea that, that in the end there can be only one and that there will be a big fight at some point, but just not today. So, <laughs> so we can have a bunch of other people that hang out. Anyway, so I, I, I read this, I don't think it's complete nonsense, but I understood a, a fundamental thing about that character. What they were playing on was the idea that, okay, he's the oldest guy in the world, so you're expecting, uh, you're expecting like, Ian McKellen as Gandalf, you know, some, mm. some wise, wizened old guy. And they're going to play against that by when you find this, this oldest man in the world, he just looks like anybody else. He just looks like a, a regular kid. And, and he's very kind of chill and not, doesn't seem to be wise at all. He's just... And, and that made sense to me, both as a, as a theatrical device, but also on a, a, the idea that, you know, if, you're, if you've lived that long, you have survived by not fighting. Because whoever you are, however great a fighter you are, you're going to have a bad day and you're gonna get killed. Mm. So the, the survivalist, the person that is always just blending in and you just don't notice, yeah, that's the person that's going to survive all that time. And is he going to be old and wise? No, because he still is not going to understand the answers to any of the really big questions. You know, what's life? What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? You can stick around for as long as you like. You still don't have answers to those questions. And that he could be at peace with that fact that you stick around long enough, maybe you just go, yeah, shit happens. I don't know why. There you go. That's it. <laughs> yeah, and that, so that there, was, the, there was something about that that, that I understood and, uh, and connected with and, and thought, yeah, okay. And then, you know, the details of the job were, we're going to fly you to Paris and we're going to put you up in a nice hotel and we're going to pay you to muck about. Uh, and that sounded okay. Very okay. So, so I did. I did the audition. I, I you know, got a, they, they taped it. They, they offered me the job, and the, the deal was, uh, like a week in Paris in February, March, whenever it was, and then come back for the season finale, as yet unwritten, but uh, for a couple of episodes and be killed off in the, in the season finale. Uh, sounded great. I mean, it wasn't a show that I knew anything about, that I had any connection to. I thought it was stupid, but there was a connection that I understood that thought, made me think, yeah, I can play this. That was, uh, I mean, that, that was the beginning of a, such a massive change in my life that, that it's, I mean, it's hard to overstate it. Um, I went and did the, the first episode, went really well. Uh, I started getting a hint that, that things were going to be different because Highlander at the time had a huge fan base that was very kind of 
again, this is the early days of fans, the internet, and, and the connection that fans would be able to have with a show where they could actually express thoughts that the writers would be able to read. And so there would be an understanding in, in the production team for the show of which characters were resonating and which ones weren't. And, and, and what, I think it was while I was filming the first of the two-part finale that, uh, that one of the producers brought a bunch of, you know, printout of, of comments on the internet. Wow. I mean, it, it, was, it was just so, it was so quaint and, and weird at the time. Yeah. And now it's absolutely, I mean, it's the fabric of everything. But at the time it was, it was really, I mean, I had never, never experienced anything like this. But comments from people who watched the show, talking about characters on the show, specifically talking about my character, and the producer saying, you know, your, your character's, uh, it's gone down really well, so we're not actually going to kill him in the, the finale. That's so cool. And it's like, yeah. I, again, I didn't understand at the time what that was going to mean. But I recognized that, yeah, it's, you know, what I'm doing, people like. Mm. And, and you don't get that sense usually in television and film because it's not like the theater where the audience is there and you can feel it, mm. you know. And so then you end up doing, was it three or four years? And you, uh, I'm looking at your IMDb, you did like 31 episodes of it. Is that correct? Yeah. So they, uh, uh, the next season started in I don't know, September of the same year. And they, <clears throat> the filming always starts in Vancouver and then transfers to, uh, to France for the second half. They, they wrote... Uh, a couple of episodes for me to be in in the Vancouver shooting. So, so then I, I'm, I'm now flying to Vancouver, a city that I, uh, I mean, I, I had heard the name, but I knew nothing about it all. Uh, I, I go spend a couple of weeks in Vancouver filming, and it's just the most stunningly beautiful city in the world. I mean, it's, it's, in, it's up in the Pacific Northwest, so it gets a lot of rain and it can be, it can be cloudy, drizzly, gray there for months and months and months at a time. But when the sun comes out, it's just breathtaking in a very real, literal sense. Mm. And I'm, I'm there, you know, again, they fly you out, they put you in a nice hotel, they give you money to, to buy you know, bits and pieces, as well as also feeding you and taking care of you. And, and it was great. It was just so great. Mm. Did two episodes then, and then when things shift back to, to Paris filming, uh, I think I did, I don't know, another five or something in that group of, uh, of episodes. So, so, there, so now, over the course of about a year, I'm now really not doing anything much in the UK because I'm not available. And I'm doing this, this weird little show where a, a lot of it is just absolute nonsense. But every now and again, they write stuff for me to play that is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. you know, sword fights and, and big emotional 
story arcs and I mean just it was great and I, I I'm still aware of the the quality of the piece as a whole is not high but the stuff that I'm being allowed to do and explore is pretty pretty great yeah you got you've got to savor that this is um you're the first guest I've had because I've obviously had a bunch of guests who have been actors uh, and became other things or simultaneously did other things but you're the first guest I've had that has been firmly embedded in the North American uh, acting industry. Uh, and, now, mm-hmm. and now you live in Los Angeles and, and I gather uh, you relocated to Los Angeles and, and you worked from there lots. So, so you have been embedded in the kind of Hollywood system. Um, yeah. So I, I'm really curious to ask you about that. Um, you're obviously a thoughtful person you know so from the outside people have all all these kind of stereotypical images of uh like hollywood film sets and so on like for example that they're they're teaming with prima donnas and all this kind of thing um what would how would you describe uh hollywood film sets to to somebody who's never experienced them so they're i mean they again i i'm I'm now I'm talking about how things were pre-COVID and I don't know if there's been a radical shift. I'm also talking about pre-Me Too movement and I don't know if there's been a radical shift. Um, the, the thing, I, I, I think for me, the, the, the best example of, of the fundamental difference, um, I, I did one of the X-Men movies, I did X2. And, you know, the, the X-Men movies, they've, they've got a, 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 a huge kind of regular cast of major characters, major stars playing those characters. And when, when you're, and that, um, that's by far the biggest budget uh, work that I've been involved with. The circus, where where all the trucks are all, all you know where all the actors have their trucks for where they spend their time when they're offset the the makeup the hair the i mean just the circus for that that show was was massive was ridiculous but the the thing of all the actors trailers were just huge they all had satellite dishes for for the for tv and they i mean they they, every single one of them was exactly the same and that's specific because contractually all of those actors have favored nations it's called where if one actor gets something everybody gets it and the whole setup to me from the outside looking at it was about avoiding conflict was about avoiding this prima donna behavior where if somebody gets to bathe in perrier everybody gets to bathe in perrier yeah the the way the producers behaved the way they talked the way the contracts were set up everything is set up to avoid conflict which of course creates conflict because now people that have that paranoia need to in some way exert themselves to show that they're different or i mean it it just and and you know the 
a whole bunch of the, 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 the major cast there are British actors that are used to, uh, you know, sharing, sharing a car. You know, they'll sit in the back of a, 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 a Range Rover, four people sitting in the back of a Range Rover because it's raining and they've got nowhere to go except be on set standing under an umbrella. You know, it was, it was McKellen and, uh, and, you know, Jean-Luc Picard and, mm. uh, and Brian Cox. You know, those guys couldn't give a flying fuck about that shit. They mm. just didn't care. But the way everything is set up is for this, uh, for this um, expression of anxiety, which is what I consider that kind of bad behavior to be. You know, where, where actors that are being paid a huge amount of money and are carrying the movie have that deep, deep inside themselves, that fear that they're not actually any good that we all have i mean we all have that and the 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 playing playing up that you know the, the the that just stupid behavior comes from a place of anxiety it doesn't come from anywhere else i don't think mm. somebody's got a healthy relationship with their own ego and with themselves wouldn't feel the need to do that yeah stuff. yeah yeah because all 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 the really good actors that i have worked with that's not, I mean, that behavior, they, they, they can behave what looks like behaving badly from the outside, but there, there's, there, there's an anxiety in it. There is a, a tension in it. There is a trying to get this right, and I don't know how to, and I need help, and I'm screaming at people because I, I, I just, I don't know how to do this. Mm. And then afterwards, they they understand the place that they have been and are apologetic and, and, and the people around them understand it too because they're not that kind of person at baseline. Mm. But, you know, but that when is, they're not in the scene. But that is common. The, from your experiences of Hollywood film sets, people like uh, actors kind of screaming at crew members and stuff, that's, that's pretty common, is it? I, I wouldn't say it's common, but I have, <laughs> I have seen it. Right. Right. We, we see these things, yes. Yeah. Yes, I have, seen, I have seen people go off, right. shall we say. Right. And, and I have seen it uh, where I agreed with it, and I've seen it where I don't agree with it, mm. shall we say. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's... Uh, have I ever seen it on a film set in Britain? I don't know. I don't think I have. Interesting. I'm trying to think of of any time I, I really saw somebody go off. No, I mean I I behaved like an asshole in in British stuff, and have uh, have been uh, not the most impressive, shall we say? Right. Uh, and I and and certainly I I was accused at the time of of being too Hollywood which may may have been true mm. um uh certainly i was um, I, I think you get used to uh to not bottling up when you are unhappy and i, I think that maybe is is the heart of this in some ways maybe 
um, that you know British is all about stiff upper lip and and you just you you just tough your way through it. Um, whereas I think the there is more of a sense in in the states of no that stuff that stuff's not healthy to keep it in it's got to come out. Um, there may be something in that. I don't know. Uh, that may be absolute nonsense. But, but I, yes, I, I, certainly you see it more commonly here than in, in the UK, right. in my experience. Um, I'm conscious, again, I, I want to uh, get on to your return to medicine fairly soon, but I'm conscious that there was sure. another, another couple of jobs that I wouldn't mind touching upon. Uh, you said something interesting when we talked on the phone that when you did you did a few episodes on 24 and you felt like yeah that that helped you that was part of what helped you leave acting and go back to medicine because you felt like 24 was a really high caliber tv show like emmy award winning or nominated or whatever and and so on and you did a few episodes in that so you felt like i've really i've really been at the top level here yeah i, I mean you know 24 uh, extraordinary show just changed changed television um, in in many ways. You know, split screen stuff and and this this sense of okay, we're gonna we're gonna run this as if it's real time. An mm. hour of television is an hour of actual time. Um, and I, I mean, once you're into that, you're then trapped by those by those parameters, but. But still, when it happened, it was like nothing else. <clears throat> and over the course of, I mean, I was, I, I was in season seven and it was still at that time, tremendous writing, uh, wonderful actors, great direction, was still winning Emmys for acting and directing and writing and production. And, you know, it, it was still a relevant show after that amount of time and the 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 focus the the attention to detail the commitment i mean it's one of the shows where i i saw somebody uh, go off on somebody i saw kiefer not uh, not an easy guy to work with mm-hmm. if you're not showing up with your a game and i, I you know there, there's there is a part of me that totally gets that, that uh, trying to make that show still be at the same level seven years in is really hard. And was, that, was, and, was it another, another actor you went off at? Uh, yeah. For just, yeah. They, was it that they just weren't good or they didn't know their lines or, or you know, were they, what exactly? It was, uh, it was another actor who, uh, who, basically said uh basically said uh, uh, wh- what do you want me to do here i i can I, I i can move this way or i can move that way or i can get in your way here or i can say the line any way you want what do you want me to do and Kiefer was just like you are you need to be bringing that character you need to know what he's going to do and you need to fight your corner you need to not be here to please anybody else around you if you're not going to show up as a real person, don't come in. Wow. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, the, the tough thing with that is that it's public. Yeah. And that feels really uncomfortable. 
but the underlying the underlying uh idea it's yeah you should that's your job yeah yeah uh, that that is really interesting because because i would uh, agree with what Kiefer Sutherland was saying but maybe as you say if there was potential to maybe he could have like put an arm around the guy and said it quietly or whatever but maybe yeah. maybe he felt it was important to make that point i don't know um i, I doubt that he thought anything at all it just it just was it was out there as soon as i mean he just yeah yeah that's you're, that's you're in that moment and there it is yeah. um so working on that show in that environment it it, it felt like and, and again we talked about this the other day there, there is there is a character in field of dreams the burt lancaster character who who is a doctor ironically and uh but as a kid had been a baseball player and 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 he just has this this yearning to know whether he could have made it to to just one time have have stepped out into the majors and and been at bat and just to see if he could if he could hit the ball when when a major league league pitcher throws it at him and and there was there was that sense for me that that working on 24 where there was this really intense uh high expectation of what everyone would bring there was very much the if you don't bring your a game don't show up to work that if i could in that environment hold my own then i didn't have to listen to the voices in my head that were saying oh yeah you're you're really good on highlander but dude it's highlander mm. you know so so that was that was important for me i think I, at, at the time i just felt good about the fact that i could work in that environment and and people didn't point and laugh at me because i was clearly not not of that caliber um but but then later when i started thinking about going back to medical school the fact of that job allowed me to be at peace with walking away from acting i think if if all the work i'd done the work that i was proud of was was in stuff that i thought the shows themselves were not very good or the standards that i was trying to achieve was was in a, you know was not that high that I, I think that would have been much more conflicted for me mm. yeah uh, 24 was hard was really hard and i i i felt good about it i felt really good about the work that i put in there that's yeah I, i'm uh, you told me that you listened to the first episode jono and he said something kind of similar he wanted to feel like he'd he'd landed a few blows you know in his mm -hmm. career before he could step away from it feeling satisfied but speaking of which yeah. let's let's talk about that process so uh, i'm really curious uh, and i didn't really ask you much about it when we spoke on the phone before w what bring me through your thought process for returning to medicine and and kind of stepping away from acting uh yeah. how long had that been so there, 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 there were uh as as always there were, there were a lot of things that were part of that moment um 
the significant ones, the really big ones. Um, it was basically, you know, 2008, 2009. The, the, there was this catastrophic collapse of the world. Uh, you know, banks were going down, people were getting laid off. There, there was just uh, money. Uh, I remember my thinking about my, my father-in-law, um, who'd been a, uh, I mean, he was president of, uh, of a company in Canada. Uh, a company that he had started off working for as basically a you know, traveling salesman, had worked his way up. Tremendously successful, but his family bore the scars of that journey in that he had been a very tough man to live with because he was on the road so much and then when he got home he would just be angry and behave appallingly and 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 what he had sacrificed was his home life his family life in order to to achieve uh, a, a a a security a wealth that would protect them all so he'd made this choice to okay it may feel terrible now but you will be safe in the future and then overnight that wealth half of it disappeared and I remember thinking, you know, what must that feel like to him as he's get, got older and is, is more aware of the damage that he did during his life to his, to his wife and his kids? And, you know, what does that feel like? And, and for me at the time, you know, I, I, was, I was a parent, I had a young kid, and, and I, I Again, I don't want to sound like a wanker about this, but you do, as you get older, particularly I think if you've got kids, you do start to think, what am I going to be remembered for? What, am, what, is, what is it going to be on my gravestone? You know, what, and, and more than that, what am I teaching my kid? You, know, you can talk to them all you want. You can tell them about what you believe in all you want, but they see you. They see how you behave. They see how you live. They see the choices you make. So is this what, what I want? Is this what I want to be telling him is important? Doing, doing an episode of, of some TV show that, that has no intrinsic meaning to me is just a job that allows us to have a roof over our heads. You know, it's not that that's an evil choice. It's just that, is that the choice that I want to be saying I think is the most important thing? Mm. Um, and then uh, uh, as well as all this, I mean, I think it was, a, 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 again, not, diff, not too dissimilar to now. It's a period where, where people were kind of re-examining their, their choices thinking about the world differently and, and worrying about what the future was bringing. Um, my wife went back to, to school. Uh, she'd been a makeup artist when I met her. Um, she went back to school to do uh, a, a master's in art therapy. And, and because of that, I was sort of, I was around, I was around uh, therapeutic thinking. I was around 
healthcare in its in its kind of broadest, most general sense. And it it sort of woke something in me that that I had that I'd just you know I'd, I'd stuffed all this this in a closet and closed the door and pretended it wasn't part of who I am and 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 it was just I, I started to be aware of the the rattling noises coming from the other side of the door mm. and and that that I missed that part of me that I I went into medicine partly because I was pushed but partly because I found it interesting there were things about it that I really found fascinating and and that maybe that needed to be allowed to breathe again um so uh, uh, i i mean you know actor you have you have a lot of time on your hands um i thought i thought maybe i should just try doing some some academic stuff some study and see what it feels like mm. Um, and, and so I, I started doing, I, I was, I started going to a college at the weekends to do, uh, I did a course in physics, just basic physics, physics 101, and absolutely loved it. It was, it was, it was just really satisfying and, 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 and thrilling to be back in that environment and physics was exactly the same way I left it you know um, it was it was exactly the same way could have been Isaac Newton had left it frankly uh, so so there was there was a recognition and, uh, and, a, and a sort of coming home kind of feel to it and so uh, so I after I'd finished that course I, I did one in in biology and, and biology was completely different it was it was like when I was last doing this there I mean we understood about DNA but but the the cascading signaling mechanisms from receptors on the cell surface down to 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 changing the way that DNA worked how it expressed I mean all that stuff was completely new to me and and again just so exciting uh, and and so I, I I did I did an organic chemistry course I did a biochemistry course and and it, and each one of them just felt like yeah no this I get it I get I get my connection to this hmm. and 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 there is there is a huge difference between choosing to go to school and the going through it all the first time. And so I started, you know, I, I started expressing the idea that maybe, maybe I, I might be thinking about applying to medical school and, and everyone around me was kind of, well, obviously hmm. that, that of course, yeah, that just, that absolutely makes sense. Actually, not everyone. There were some people that said, you, you're, you're crazy you, you should not do this which again was was really uh, <clears throat> was really revealing um, when, when I left medicine the first time there were people that could not speak to me they just couldn't be around me it was too disturbing because I had done this this really shocking thing and 
And second time around, they behaved the same way. But the, are these the same me, people or people in the acting industry? Yeah. Oh, the same people? No, no, no. No, the same people. Same people. Okay. Which, which tells you it's, it's not about the choice you're making. It's the fact of the choice you're making. Taking it's the risk. You, yeah, yeah. That yeah. that that is really disturbing, in 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 a a profound way. Yeah. And and I you know I I get it. it it's it, it. I I think if we, I think for me the the one really important protective factor that I've had throughout my life is recognizing when I am unhappy or, or, or that I'm that I'm in the wrong place in some way and and changing it yeah. and and uh, you know I lo look at you look at, uh, at at my life it's it's kind of it's all over the place you know there was never it, it's obvious that there was never a plan oh this is what I want and I'm going after it, it it's just been this higgledy-piggledy staggering from one thing to another but what what unites it all is that sense of now this is I'm in the wrong place I need to change it and then you if you keep rejecting the things that you don't need then you get to a place where you go okay yeah now this this yeah this is work, this works this fits mm. and, and I, I think that's I think that you know kind of for what it's worth is is part of the story for me and and, and I, I think for some people for other people recognizing that they are unhappy is really hard because because it sort of suggests well if you're unhappy you should change something and if you are near somebody who has made that choice it can be very uncomfortable yeah that's a really good point uh that's I think very resonant and, and a, a, an incredibly useful ability if people have it, but I, I completely understand what you mean. Um, I, it's also, I mean, it, it's also really, uh, I mean, the, the damage from making those choices is huge and not to be underestimated at all. Well, um, so, so the, the self-protective factor of people just going, okay, I can't be near this. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Mm. I'm I, I imagine listeners might be curious because obviously you said uh, you were married, you had a kid. Um, without wanting to pry too much, was were you kind of like financially comfortable at this point? Like, uh, were finances not a, a worry in terms of leaving acting and going back to study? No, absolutely no. Finances were a huge worry. Right. Um, yeah, and. We would not have, you know, like we would not have been able to do this without the support of my wife's parents, right? You know, um, which again is is another. I mean, it's an interesting spin for my father-in-law. I, I think the fact of being able to help his daughter was was a a healing and and you know i i obviously i don't want to uh, uh i don't want to speak for for people that i shouldn't be speaking for but but 
I, I do think there was an aspect of, um, of penance and healing uh, related to this. Uh, but without that support, we, we could not have, have done this. I mean, obviously, uh, when, I, when I went to med school the first time, everything was paid for by the state because I, I was from a very poor uh, home. Um, going to medical school in the States, there is nothing comparable. There never has been anything comparable. And, and so it, it was going to be about taking out ridiculously huge loans to, uh, to, to, to actually just pay for college and then not being available to work, so having no income. Yeah. Um, so it meant we, we had no, no home, no job, no, I, I mean, and we were, uh, I mean, there, there, were, <laughs> there were significant consequences for my wife and my son as well as, uh, as, well as for me in making this choice. Yeah. But I think for all of us, there was this sense of the long-term picture is a hell of a lot more secure than, than being an actor. And so there was an understanding that, uh, th that, it, that it, in big picture terms, it made sense. Yeah. It was a risk, but, there was, but it made sense. And really, the risk is that you, you go to medical school, you become a doctor, and you're really unhappy. But now you're stuck with it, mate, because we've got all these debts. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, that really was the risk. And my, my exploration of, you know, just dipping my toes in it was trying to figure out, am I going to get to four weeks before final exams again and just go, no, this is not me. Because that is not okay. <laughs> yeah, in fairness, pulling that stunt twice in your life uh, would be yeah. pretty yeah. <laughs> unforgivable. Yeah, but 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 uh, but you didn't do that. You didn't feel that way this time. Hmm. No, no, I didn't. I, I went to med school, and it it was it was great. I mean, I, I went to med school in Vermont, which was just a really is a really interesting institution you know every place will tell you that they 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 don't have a particular type that they really they want to get to know the person the applicant and they want to they just want to get the people that are the best fit and and it's bollocks you know everywhere has their they have so many applications that they have a, a computer goes through the applications and decides cutoffs based on things that you put into the system. So they, they absolutely have a type. Um, Vermont, more than anywhere else, is just, it's a weird place out there. And, and they, they had, I mean, my, my year was incredibly diverse. Hmm. And coming in as a, I mean, I was 48 when I went to med school. Um, anywhere that is offering a place to someone who's 48 years old is already a bit off the mark. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, sure, I came in with, with a good story, with an interesting story, but almost everywhere took one look at that and went, nah, nah, we, you are not for us. 
Vermont, they, they had, I think, they, they had an understanding that what I brought would be good for everybody else in the class. Yeah. So it wasn't about me specifically. It was the fact of having somebody who is nearly 50 when they start changes everybody else in the room. Absolutely. And, and that's the, that, was, that was a tremendous insight on their part, which I didn't understand at the time, but I now understand looking back. And, and, and people, you know, people would always ask me, was it, was it really hard to go back to, to, to medical school? And I would say, man, of course it was. It's medical school. It was hard when I did it when I was 18. Mm. It was also hard when I did it at 50, but it was hard for different reasons. You know, at 18, I was really good at learning lists and spewing stuff out. And at 50, I don't have that ability anymore. My brain has, has learned that some things are really important and you've got to hang on to them, but most things you can look them up yeah and that's made even worse with with the internet and phones and and but my brain now absolutely refuses to hang on to things that i can look up which is really frustrating uh, but I, I just can't remember stuff anymore but i have a much better sense obviously than i did at 18 i have a much better sense of the big picture yeah i have a much better sense of understanding of people and reading people and seeing what is going on for them and making them feel seen and heard. And so some stuff is, was much easier and some stuff was just really hard. I'm curious why you chose to be an anesthetist, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we would say anesthesiologist. Ah. In, Britain, in Britain, you'd say anesthetist. Okay. Um, uh, man, you and me both. I went to I went to med school thinking I was going to be a pediatrician. Right. Um, I so the the journey into anesthesia was again just I, I I bumped into some some guy in in med school in Vermont uh, who was just a really interesting dude. He he was he had been a surgeon. Fanny didn't like surgeons very much, so he went back and retrained as an anesthesiologist. And he was in Vermont doing anesthesiology, but spent six months of the year back in, uh, in Arizona on a Navajo reservation doing surgery. Hmm. And, and he, was, he was just a really cool, interesting dude. I got chatting with him, I can't remember why, um, but he said, you know, uh, I, I'm, you, you don't really do a rotation in anesthesia in med school. I mean, obviously, when you're doing surgery, you're aware of it. And, and there's, you do a, a little bit of, uh, uh, of kind of training. But, but really, you don't, you don't spend any time doing it. He said, you know, come to well, every week we have, we have a grand rounds. We have a, a, like a, a lecture presentation on, on some topic. Just come and uh, come see if you find it interesting. And, and so I went to the first Grand Rounds I went to 
there was one of the second year residents was presenting on the use of music as an anxiolytic. So music to reduce the amount of pain meds you need, music just to, to calm people when they're getting procedures done. And, and she was a DJ in New York. So she was mixing tunes in while she was presenting these papers, these academic papers, just mixing tunes in. And it was fucking brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was like, I don't know what anesthesia is. I don't care what anesthesia is. These are my people. Yeah. It was that sense again of this, this is, this is great. And, and I, I you know, I, the more I got, the more time I spent in anesthesia, the more I recognized that there was a physiology side of it that, that I really liked, I found interesting. There was an immediacy that worked well for me because I, I am just not the kind of guy that I can, you know, chat with a patient and, and then give them some blood pressure meds and then say, I'll see you in six months to see if those meds made any difference. And I'll try and pretend that everything else that happened to you in that six month period didn't influence whether the meds, I mean, just, uh, it's nonsense to me. It's absolute nonsense. Anesthesia, you're, you're giving a medication and you are seeing what it does right then and there. Much better fit for me. Mm. And, and the, the, the OR, the, the operating theater environment, again, really good fit for me because it's the same as a film set. It's just no different. There is a small area where you need absolute control over what's going on and then everything around it off, off camera can be total chaos, doesn't matter. <laughs> and and, and the, you know, the crew will come in first thing in the morning and set everything up and then the prima donna, the talent, will come in and get upset about something and scream and shout and throw things around. I mean, it's the same, it's the same dynamics, it's the same people except that it's actually life and death as opposed to pretending to be life and death, you know? Yeah. So, so there was a whole bunch of it that, that once I, I sort of dipped into it, just became clearer and clearer that, yeah, no, this, this could work. And then the other thing that, that for me really resonates is y- your interaction with patients is really short and unbelievably intense because you meet somebody and you basically say to them, you need to trust me with your life. And I don't mean that in any kind of figurative way. I mean, literally, you are going to trust me with your life. Yeah. And, and the intensity of that moment is, is just, I, I mean, that, that's the world I... I love and thrive in. Um, as a matter of interest, have you had uh, in your time being an anesthesiologist? Uh, what are the most memorable moments uh, since you've been practicing? God, man, uh, that is a very long list, my friend. <laughs> what if you um, if you had to pick one or two? I think the, um, I mean, I, mean, I, I, did, uh, I did four years of anesthesia training and then I did another year of 
cardiac specific training. Um, I never get over the extraordinariness of looking at somebody's chest open and their heart sitting there beating. Mm. I mean, that is just, it's, it's just astonishing. And, and, and heart transplants, man, I mean, just, uh, it, it, there are, there are certainly more technically challenging operations, but there really is nothing as, as profound as taking somebody's heart out and putting somebody else's heart in and connecting it up and waking it up and watching it start to beat. I mean, it's just, it, it's so deep and, and mythic and, and, and just the sense in us as a species of the heart beating as being the source of life is, is, is really, really old. And so to watch that is, I mean, that, that, that is always extraordinary to me. Um, the other thing that I, the thing that I, I this is one that, uh, you know, I, I, I struggle with, but, but I think in a good way. Um, it, it's, it's hard for me, I mean, obviously it's hard when people die, but it's harder for me when, when you spend the whole of a case stopping somebody dying and you succeed. I think that is, is harder. That's the one that when, when I get home at the end of the day or I get home the following morning, or those are the ones that still, still challenge me Be because there is this sense of, 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 of holding, I don't want to get wanky about this, but there is that sense of holding somebody's spirit and supporting it and then it it goes back to their body and and, and they survive but but you've you've had that it, it's like it's been in you and the pain and the fear and the the longing is still inside you until you find a way to to somehow open a door and let it out and and, and I struggle with that mm. all the time. Yeah, I, uh, and I and I, I don't do many of those cases, but but there is it's maybe maybe one or two cases a month where where you know going in that there are ways that that person can choose to die that you can't stop them. You just can't stop them, and you're trying to you're trying to to cut them off before they get to that fork in the road. Mm. And, and those, those, I mean, those are the best cases and they're also the, in a sense, the, the worst. Yeah. I mean, obviously 
I can't fully understand not having been in your shoes but as you describe it I can I can get a glimpse of of how intense that would be and kind of yeah how um how bracing that would be emotionally the I don't know in in a, in, yeah, in a way and, and highlighting mortality in a strange way uh, more than death I know that sounds strange but the how how kind of uh, fragile it is maybe yeah yeah no absolutely it's uh, I mean there, there's uh, mortality yeah it's it it's very real yeah and you know most of the time it most of the time it's that's not the kind of stuff I'm doing most of the time it's uh, you know you're gonna go to sleep you're gonna stay asleep and then I'm gonna wake you up and that's that's what we do mm. you know we do uh, someone's gonna take your appendix out it's not gonna be that comfortable if you're awake and present so uh, <laughs> so we'll just send you off on a dream vacation and uh, then when it's done we'll wake you up again mm. you know most most of it is that and and I, you know, there, there is a great uh, satisfaction in in that that skill, that competence, that that being able to to manipulate a, a a human being and to take care of them. There is a great satisfaction in that. Mm. I, I'm very conscious that we're um, we're almost out of our our time. Um, there's so much I, I would love to ask you about. Uh, that practice about uh, anesthesiology um but uh kind of on a on a on a slightly kind of lighter note to to tie your sto- <laughs> your stories together uh you're now uh working in cedar sinai hospital in los angeles uh yes I, i'm curious yes. uh having been a working <laughs> actor for so long there uh, has it happened yet that you've had a patient or someone who is like somebody you knew from the industry as an actor or you know have the worlds collided like that yet in your time in the hospital no no I, that's that's interesting no I, I you know uh, when I when I f- first started in medical school I, I was still you know it was it was all fairly recent and so people would recognize me uh, I don't know maybe maybe once a week or so there'd be a patient who'd who'd recognize me that's really rare these days um but actually actually treating a patient that 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 is somebody that i that i've worked with no that hasn't happened i guess it could though i'm i'm i i have uh i mean i obviously friends uh people that are in this area cedars is uh, is one of the big hospitals so i there are times where people i know are going to the hospital for things and you know we talk about that but not not really not really industry people because i don't i never really hung out with actors very much um so i I don't have a lot of actor friends right um yeah i mean the the one of the uh, one of the writers, the the showrunner, kind of head producer on Highlander, uh, was ill recently and was at Cedars. Uh, so, you know, he and I chatted about <laughs> about what went on. I think one of one of the 
one of the things that I'm really good at is explaining complicated medical stuff to people that don't have any kind of medical background. Um, I, I'm, I'm really good at that. Flip side is no doctors believe that I know anything at all because I always <laughs> sound like a regular person talking. I don't use all the buzzwords. So, so you know, it cuts both ways. But well, That's a great choice, um, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I think so too. I think, it's, uh, I think it's really important that people get what is going on. I think that's, it's easier to trust somebody if they tell you in ways that you understand what's, what's going to go on. Yeah, if you can't describe something simply, you don't understand it, as somebody said. Yeah, yes. And um, as you look back now, do you you seem pretty kind of content and compelled by your your current uh, life? So, do you do you kind of miss acting at all, or are you happy with your life? So, I'm I'm very happy with how things are right now. I mean, it it just I, I'm. I'm in a place uh, where, where both uh, what I do every day and the people that are around me every day uh, and, and the life that I have outside of that all, all feel like they are in a, in a really nice balance. You know, most days I really enjoy my, my day at work. Some days are really tedious and that's okay because that's just how, how things are. But I'm, I'm very happy with the basic setup of how life is. Um, in terms of missing acting, I really don't think about it. One of the, one of the reasons for doing anesthesia was this, this kind of vague idea that it's, it's a skill set that you can, you can move around. You don't have to have a, a, a patient base. Mm. You could, you can, a bit like uh, like uh, A and E emergency medicine, it's a skill that you can take somewhere else and and apply it to to somebody you just met. Um, so there was always this thinking that that I could potentially, you know, just spend six months working really hard, put some money in the bank, and then spend six months doing an acting job. Um, that was that was always a vague background thing and it just has never crossed my mind because i'm really engaged in what i'm doing so i don't I, I don't miss it at all in that sense it's much easier to live in la not being an actor that's for sure i bet because <laughs> there, there is this this really difficult dynamic of if you're if you're an actor and you you call someone up to say let's go for a coffee there is just that if it's if it's another actor, there's going to be a tension. If they're working, you're not. You're working, they're not. If it's a, a director or a producer, there is this tension of do they do you want something from me? I don't have a job I can offer you. Mm. But, you know, th but there's there's always that kind of hanging over any interaction. I, I don't have that anymore. I can call people up. I can I can say let's meet, and there is n there is nothing they can offer me. So that that's great. Um, I I do I I you know, there there is an aspect of the uh, the catharsis of acting that I miss, where you if you just completely indulge yourself in an emotion, uh, be it 
uh, be it love, be it hate, be it anger, be it whatever, that, that there is, uh, there is a, a catharsis to, to doing that periodically, which you just don't get in medicine, um, obviously. Um, and, and the, uh, I mean, I, I think it's really hard to stay healthy in medicine if you don't have periods where you just let all this crap out because you are a vicarious, uh, you're a bystander to such trauma all the time. Mm. And you pretend you're not, and you put up this tough wall where, you know, we, we don't feel things, but that stuff is, your body knows, your body is feeling that and absorbing that, and there needs to be a way of releasing it that, uh, that certainly, you know, playing big emotional scenes in stupid TV dramas uh, just offers you that possibility. Well, it sounds like uh, potentially this this journey might have another little twist. Uh, the, the way you're talking there, who know? I know you're you, you're not thinking about it right now, but who knows? We might see you back on yeah. our screens at some point. Yeah, who knows? I mean, uh, my my life has never suggested that the next step would be obvious <laughs> yeah. until after it's happened, and then you look back and you go, "Oh, of course, <laughs> yeah, of course." Well. Uh, it's an extraordinary life uh, from my point of view and I think the listeners would agree uh, and uh, I'm really grateful to you for, for sharing it with me and, uh, and for your time Peter really an absolute pleasure um, I, I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed this conversation yeah. it's been great yeah same here so you may think the interview is over but we're going to have a first here on Pat's podcast and that is a little postscript from our guest I realized I hadn't asked Peter a question that I really should have, so I emailed him and he very kindly recorded this extra little bit for us. The question was, I gather that even though anesthetics have been used for a long time now, it's still a bit of a mystery how exactly they work. Is that right? Uh, yeah, fundamentally, I mean, they're, they're, this gets at some really, really interesting territory that uh, I, I have a very superficial knowledge about. But basically, we more and more understand uh, where anaesthetics work, the, uh, the, 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 the transmitters, the, 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 the membrane proteins that they attach to, that they change flow patterns through. We have a sense that, that they, uh, in some way, change the, maybe the the permeability the the lipid solubility of the membrane they, they do we know where they act we know what they do but we don't really know anything about what the difference between being conscious and being unconscious is you know you you put you put uh, electrodes on the brain and you look at patterns and you look at the way uh, different bits of the brain connect to each other in the way they talk to each other and you can see when someone's asleep that the patterns are different or when they're under anaesthetic the patterns are different and under different anaesthetics they are different and what does it mean anyway? You know when you're asleep your brain is still active it's still there's still electrical charges buzzing around and 
when people that have terrible brain injuries and are completely vegetative and do not respond in any way, they still have electrical activity. And there is a sort of a, a, a basic belief that the way bits of the brain connect to each other is the difference between being asleep and awake or being unconscious or conscious. But it's not clear which bits have to connect in any particular way in order for you to be conscious, because sometimes you see different things in, in different states, and it's really hard to measure what, what consciousness is, because if you're unconscious, you're not responsive, so you can't tell a researcher what's going on. Um, but but there, there's also this really creepy, freaky, weird thing in some surgeries, we cool the brain down to a point where it is doing nothing and there is no activity in order to protect it while you're cutting off the blood supply to it. And then once you've done the surgery, you warm it up and it wakes back up and it connects and comes back to being who you are. I mean, it doesn't, it's not like a wiping a hard drive. You don't come back with a completely blank brain. You connect back and become yourself again. So there is, there is kind of in a fundamental way, a lack of understanding of what the difference is between being awake and asleep. Or frankly, what's the difference between being alive and being dead? You know, there's no activity and you're not dead. And then you wake it up and there is activity and you're alive again. Uh, what's, what's that mean? You know, if the brain is completely flatlining, then are you dead? Are you unconscious? Are you present? Do you still exist in some other space? All this stuff I, I find absolutely fundamentally fascinating and we are basically just scratching the surface of it we're starting to understand some basic biochemistry of what is being affected but we don't fundamentally know what being awake conscious alive is very cool way to end the interview Thanks very much to Peter for sending on that uh, insightful postscript. That was the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast and think it's a worthwhile venture, you can support it on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash patspodcast. It will help me invest more time in the podcast and continue finding interesting stories. Alternatively, you could leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts or simply share it with family and friends. Any of the above would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Pat's Podcast. See you soon for another unusual life story. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.